Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Thank you, Devin, for reading our lesson. Casey, for leading us in liturgy and to our youth choir, Sunshine Choir, Asbury Choir. Uh, we are so grateful for the music that you've already provided, the bells, and we look forward to more uh, after the message during our offering. Uh, we are passing the plates again. You all remember how we used to do the offering and sing the doxology? Uh, it feels kind of normal today, doesn't it? A new normal of sorts. 8.30 is so wonderful to be here at 8.30. I realize that for some of you, that early hour, A.M., stands for aggravating and mean, but for many of us, it's about lunchtime, Dave, right? And so it feels, it feels right to be here and to begin uh, on this second Sunday of Easter with our 8.30 service. My mother is here. She loves the early morning hours. She's a four o'clock riser. And in fact, she told me a few months ago, she said, uh, I'll come back under two conditions. If you'll start an 8.30 service and if y'all will get a new preacher, I will come back. <laughs> and so I decided that the first of those was the better option. And so here we are and we welcome you. I hope we'll have some people here at 11 as well. 945 we'll be in the chapel and we look forward to this new beginning today during this Easter season. If you know the gospel of John, there are no less than five resurrection appearances in the fourth gospel, chapters 20 and 21. 
The first resurrection appearance is in chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. It's a personal appearance to Mary Magdalene. And Devin just read for us the second and third appearance. The second appearance of the risen Christ happens on Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, likely in the upper room where Jesus had served the Last Supper, where the disciples now are holding up because they're scared to death of of the authorities. Legitimately so, they're afraid that they too may suffer the same kind of fate as their teacher. And so in their fear, they isolate themselves, they barricade themselves. One text says behind locked doors, they secure themselves in fear for their lives. And yet in the midst of that moment, verse 19 says, listen to this, Jesus came and stood in their midst. There's a better translation closer to the Greek that says Jesus came and stood right in the middle of them. I love that. There are two things to me that stand out about that verse. Thing one is nothing can separate Jesus from his followers. That's good news. Thing two is this. The post-Easter community is a Christ-centered fellowship. Notice Jesus is not on the periphery. He's not on the outside looking in. He's not on the edge. Jesus is right in the middle of us. In other words, Jesus is the epicenter of our faith. I may be wrong, but I think this is John's way of saying that the church by nature is a Christocentric people. It's one of our core values at BUMC that we are necessarily and intentionally a Christ-centered body. When Jesus becomes peripheral to the church, when Jesus becomes incidental to the community, we're in serious trouble. The body gets out of kilter when that happens. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who once said that Jesus is not only the center, but that Jesus is the circumference of the Bible. In other words, what he means is this. What Jesus is and what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection is the fundamental content of the Scripture. And what you notice right off the bat, Devin, from your reading is the first words that Jesus speaks to his fearful followers. Shalom. What a beautiful word. Shalom. Say that with me. Shalom. Peace be with you. Now, when I read that, I shudder to think what Jesus might have said to them on Easter Sunday night. He might have said, uh, I just want to go on record and thank you guys for that show of support last Friday afternoon. With friends like you, you all really had my back. Jesus could have shamed them, but he shalomed them. On Monday, Thursday evening, when he served the supper and washed the feet, his last words to his friends that night, Shalom, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. And his first word on Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, was the same word, Shalom, peace. That's why ever since that day, Resurrection Day, this has been a resurrection greeting in the liturgy of the church. 
So that when the pastor stands front and center and says, the peace of Christ be with you, the congregation responds, it's a reminder that we're Easter people. We still grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope because our hope is in the center of who Jesus is and he's still in the middle of us this morning. And then John says, verse 20, he showed them his scars. What's that about? It means that the risen one, the living Christ, is the same as the crucified one. Though for sure the form of his body has changed, now he's able to come through locked doors, but his identity is still discernible. He is still recognizable by his scars. And suddenly, says John, their fear turns to joy. In fact, it's more than joy. The word is overjoyed. Uh, Perichares, it means they're ecstatic. They're euphoric by the sense that he is present in the middle right in the center of the room. And then he, verse 22, he breathes on them. That's interesting. The word breath and spirit in the Greek and Hebrew is the exact same word. And so what's happening? When he breathes on them, what is he doing? He's resuscitating them. It's, it's a kind of spiritual CPR, if you will. He's recreating his friends. And it may be an illusion, I think it is, to the creation story in Genesis 1, where you remember on day 6 that Jesus scooped up a handful of Tennessee dirt and breathed into it, and life happened in his own image. And here's Jesus doing it again. He's reviving the dust. He's breathing into marred clay and enabling us to become a witness for him. In fact, he says, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. And that word sent in the Greek, apostolos, apostle, an apostle is one who is sent with good news. It's interesting to me that in John's narrative, and this is different from Luke, in John's narrative, Easter and Pentecost are combined. The resurrection is the very event that births the witness of the church. And I wish we could stop there. But there's that third appearance. And this is where the tension comes in. Apparently one of the 11 was missing when Jesus came into the room. Verse 24 says, now Thomas, the twin, was not with them when Jesus appeared. You see what happens when you miss church? <laughs> you miss the possibility of encounter. This is exactly what Matthew meant in chapter 18, verse 20, when Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be right in the middle of you. Thomas wasn't there. His absence is unexplained. Where was he? We don't know. We can think about it. I can project that maybe, just maybe, his grief, his trauma was so great that he just couldn't face the others. Maybe in Thomas's mind, just the sight of Peter and James and John was too much. Their, their presence would only serve to remind him 
of his loss, or worse, his betrayal of Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but if you turn back a few chapters to John 11, verse 16, Thomas at one point vowed to take a bullet for Jesus. He said, if we have to go to Jerusalem with him, I will die with him if necessary. But when push came to shove, he, like all the others, ran for his life. And now his instinctive response in grief is to go it alone. We do that sometimes. So hurt, so grief-stricken, I'm just a no-show. Or perhaps I come to the fellowship, but I'm not really here. My ears are unclogged, but I'm I'm not listening. My eyes are focused, but I, I can't see. And sometimes our instinctive response in our deep grief is just to go it alone. And that's what Thomas was doing. When he finally returns to the others, the other ten do what they were commissioned by the risen one to do. They, They shared their witness. They said, we have seen the Lord. But their testimony falls on stony ground. And Thomas was completely unresponsive In fact, not only did their testimony fail to persuade Thomas, it actually compounded his despair. And I have to say a word, I get it, I get it. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's hard for me to celebrate somebody else's newfound faith when I've lost mine. It's tough to sing the hallelujah chorus when you're stuck on Good Friday. And I want you to check out Thomas's response. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, unless I put my finger in the nail prints and stick my hand, one translation says it, and jab my hand into his side, I will never believe. And don't look now, but all of a sudden, it looks like grief has turned to cynicism. I remember something Maya Angelou once said, there is nothing so pitiful as a young cynic because he has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. He's gone from grief to skepticism to cynicism to bitterness. It's interesting how historically, traditionally, we call him Doubting Thomas. But Thomas wasn't the only one who had his doubts. They all did. And so do we. It's part of the journey. In fact, Matthew's gospel concludes just before the Great Commission in chapter 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It's right there in the book. So before we go jumping on Thomas and my self-righteousness, maybe we should know that his response initially was no different from all the others. When Mary came skipping through the door on Easter Sunday morning saying, I have seen the Lord, they didn't buy it. In fact, Luke says they heard it and said it's an idle tale, it's utter nonsense, it's rubbish. They didn't believe it until they experienced him for themselves. And at this point, I think, The real miracle in this passage 
is that the disciples didn't kick him out. They didn't blackball him. They didn't remove his name from the roll. And sometimes we do that to hurting people. When someone's struggling with their faith, with their trust in God, we can sometimes in subtle ways give them a cold shoulder because in some ways their doubt threatens our faith, makes me feel insecure and defensive, but not these guys. They stuck by him. And their loyalty leads to encounter. One of our strategic partners, Healing Housing, had a fundraiser a couple of weeks ago, and Brian Hicks, who's been our pastor in the Napier-Sudicum area for 15 years, done a marvelous, incredible work in community development, told us a story of his eight-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, who said to, to him one night when she was trying to go to sleep, Daddy, I'm not sure I always believe in God. And he looked at his little girl and he said, it's okay, sweetie, God believes in you. <laughs> he said three weeks later, she came back from school and said, Daddy, there was a little girl at school, a friend of mine, who said she wasn't sure either, and I told her, it's okay, God believes in you. The best and surest place to maintain Christ-centered faith is in the company of fellow believers. Now, every week we gather here or online. We're so grateful for those of you who are online. Every week we come together either in person or through technology, and every one of us are in a different place today. I dare say that some of you are in a new season of faith, and I've described it as it's like you're falling in love again with God. You feel like you're being reborn. You can't wait to worship and praise. Others of us who've been in the field for a while, it's kind of a routine. We see worship as an essential discipline through which we can grow in our devotion and service. And some of us, frankly, may be in distress. In fact, you're you're hanging by a thread. You're not sure what you believe or who you trust. And as a matter of fact, you're here today because you don't really know where else to go. Your life is one of quiet desperation. But you're here. <laughs> and you're in the right place. Even when you're not sure you believe in God, God believes in you. And when you come in the company of the fellowship, he breathes into us his spirit. I have a favorite preacher that I occasionally read or listen to. He's a Scotsman. He's from Glasgow, but he's been at Parkside Church in Cleveland for 40 years. It's been his only church he served. His name is Alistair Begg. Dr. Begg, in a recent sermon, was preaching about the power of the cross and the resurrection, and he raised this question to the audience. If you were to die tonight and you were trying to gain entrance into heaven, what would you say? And then he answers his own question. If you answer that question in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, 
because I believe, because I did good, because I have faith, you've gone wrong. The only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. And then he said, as an illustration, think about the thief on the cross. He said, I can't wait one day to find that guy and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because one minute you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been to a Bible study. You've never been baptized. You don't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said to him. What are you doing here? And he said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I I don't know. And the angel said, excuse me while I get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, angel. He comes down, so just a few questions. He said, "Uh, are you clear on the doctrine of justification of faith? He said, I've never heard of it. He said, well, let's just get right to the doctrine of Scripture. And the guy's just staring into space. He has no clue. And eventually, in frustration, the supervising angel says, okay, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. And so it was for Thomas. Hanging by thread, he found his entrance through the scars of the man in the middle. Next Sunday, disciples gathered. Jesus was right in the middle again, and this time Thomas was there. And Jesus picked him out and said, Thomas, see the scars. Touch the nail prints. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas fell on his knees. He didn't need to touch him. And he makes the greatest confession in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. Did you know that's the first time in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as God? And Jesus said, look, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Last word. In our last church where we were privileged to serve in Atlanta, east of Atlanta in Lawrenceville, I remember one day doing a funeral for a wonderful saint of the church in her 80s named Imogene Bergamy. Imogene. After her death, as is usually the case here or anywhere, I learned some things about her that I never knew. She never told me. In 1979, Imogene's house burned to the ground. Her husband and youngest daughter died in the fire, and she too was burned over 75% of her body. She was not expected to live, but she did. The night of the blaze, she was able to save her two-year-old grandson, and speaking of grandsons, have I told you about mine? (laughs) I have no idea where that picture came from. Where was it? Imogene had a two-year-old grandson in that fire that she literally just threw out the window into the arms of a neighbor, and then she jumped. I met him, this grandson, at her funeral. He's a man now, of course. He's grown up, 
married with children of his own. And I said to him, are you the one? And he instinctively knew what I was talking about. And he said, yeah, I'm the one. And he stretched out his arm and he showed me a scar on his right hand that he still bears from that night. And he said, when I look at it, I realize that's a sign of my salvation, courtesy of my grandmother's love. I said, can I tell the congregation? He said, sure. In the eulogy that day, I told the body at the service about it, and he showed his hand. And that became a segue for me to talk about another man who has scars. In fact, he has them on both hands. Those scars are signs of our salvation, courtesy of the love of God, who has actually gone through the fire for you and for me. And the very image of those wounds brings us to our knees and causes us to say, my Lord and my God. And he's still in the middle of us today, breathing his spirit on you and me and sending us out again with good news. May it be so in and through us, in Christ's name.